Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. And I want to read some passages of scripture to you uh, as we get started with the sixth week of uh, the message or the meaning of the cross. Uh, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 31. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 31 says... Now is the time for judgment on this world, for now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. And then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the first eight verses. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who were coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. For none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, We've been in a series called The Meaning of the Cross. We've looked at a whole multitude of meanings. We're now coming to the end just this week and next week. Today I want to talk to you how the cross is the shaming of principalities and powers. And we're going to look at the Palm Sunday story to help us get there. Palm Sunday is a commemoration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. But the events of that week culminate... Uh, with Jesus' death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. Uh, The events of this week that we've come to know as Holy Week are so cosmic in nature uh, that it is not an exaggeration to say that the events of this week have changed the world. Uh, It's also not an exaggeration to say that Holy Week is, in many ways, a confrontation between the way of heaven represented by Christ and the way of the principalities and powers uh, that are represented by Pontius Pilate and others. It is not an exaggeration to say on this week with cosmic consequences that it is a confrontation, a head-to-head duel between 
the ways of heaven and the principalities and powers, each with their own representatives. Jesus, as a faithful Jew, was coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And as we have celebrated and reenacted this morning, Jesus came into the city uh, riding on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palms. Hosanna is a form or an expression of adoration and praise and joy, which is why you have to play the drums a little bit louder on that song. Okay? Uh, Nina, our bass player, said, listen, you've only got a couple more weeks to play drums in this place, so just let it rip on this song. And I, don't, I think maybe let it rip or put yourself out there or something. It was very encouraging to me, and I went for it, including the little wash at the end. So, uh, but it's an expression of adoration and praise and, in fact, joy. That is our hosannas. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, also was coming into Jerusalem because he did not live there. Pontius Pilate lived in the nearby Caesarea. So Pilate entered the city for Passover, uh, but not on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna in the waving of palms, but rather Pontius Pilate enters the city on Passover with a small army of Roman soldiers uh, flanked on each side. He does this at Passover. He comes into the city of Jerusalem because Passover is a celebration of Jewish liberation. Uh, which is to say, if there was ever going to be a revolt of the Jewish people against the Roman occupation, Passover seemed like a pretty good time to do that. And Pilate needed to squash any potential threats, uh, any potential attempts at overthrowing. And so he came into the city with a demonstration, a small army, soldiers flanked on each side. So in comes Jesus riding side saddle on a donkey on one side of town. And in comes Pilate riding a horse flanked by an army on the other side of town. Pilate coming into the city with an army, sending a message to any who would dare whisper of freedom. And the message was this, don't you dare even think about it. Pilate came into the city with a clear message of how he intended to keep the peace. That's interesting, isn't it? How Pilate intended to keep the peace. When your life runs on an axis of power enforced through violence, your definition of peace shrinks so that it is only defined through the lens of your own group. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'll say it again. Uh, when your life runs on an axis of power enforced through violence, your definition of peace shrinks down until it's only seen through the lens of the group of which you are a part. And so in comes Pontius Pilate with his armies flanked on each side in order to keep the peace. Jesus also comes into the city, but not as a way... Uh, to make any kind of demonstration, but as the fulfillment of a 400-year-old prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, who said a king of Israel would come riding on a donkey, and this king would proclaim peace for all the nations. 
When your life runs on an axis of love expressed in forgiveness, your definition of peace expands to include the flourishing and the well-being of all people. And so we can say, in many ways, Palm Sunday is the tale of two parades. Peace as understood through the axis of power, and peace as understood through the axis of love. Now, there's little doubt that the news of a so-called king entering the city, proclaiming peace, and receiving hosannas reached the ears of Pontius Pilate. And so Pontius Pilate responded in the only way that he knew how to respond, which was, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy who may very well be a threat to the thing that we've got, to the peace that we've got going here. And what ensues after these two entries into Jerusalem is in fact a dramatic story to say the least. And if it's a dramatic story, if it's a drama that's being played out in the pages of Scripture, then certainly we understand that every drama needs a protagonist, that is the hero, and every story needs an antagonist, that is the villain. Every story needs an antagonist and a protagonist, a hero and a villain. Uh, the antagonists of this Holy Week drama are Pontius Pilate, who represents political power of Rome, Herod, who is the wealthy client king of the Jews who was installed by Rome. Do you know what I mean by a client king? That means he holds the position of king of the Jews, uh, but is really there to just do Rome's bidding. He's installed by Rome. He's there because of his wealth. He's a client king. Which is exactly why when Jesus comes in with the, with the accusation of king of the Jews, it's, that's kind of Pilate's deal because he's installed Herod. The Jews already have a king. And I quite like him because he does the bidding that I want. Right? And so to say there's another king of the Jews is in fact a threat to Pilate. And so your antagonists are Pontius Pilate, who represents the political power of Rome. Herod, who is the wealthy client king of the Jews, who was installed by Rome. And Caiaphas the corrupt high priest. These are your villains in the story, your antagonists. Uh, and these figures in the drama of Holy Week represent political power, wealth, and corrupt religion. Political power, wealth, and corrupt religion. And these three things are the usual gears that evil uses to operate in the world. Now, which is not to say that it is not to say that these things are bad in and of themselves, right? It's not that having a position of political power is bad in and of themselves. It's not that wealth is bad in and of itself. And it certainly is not uh, to say that religion in and of itself is bad. Here you are on a Sunday morning. Good for you, right? You are a religious person, right? You came to church. So those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but these are the things upon which the gears of evil usually churn. These are the mechanisms that evil, the principalities and powers often use 
to operate in the world. And so in the scriptures, when you talk about systems of power, often expressed in political realms, when you talk about systems of wealth without generosity, and when you talk about systems of religion that have become corrupted, what the scriptures usually say are the principalities and the powers. That's what they're talking about. Corrupted religion, wealth without any sense of generosity, and self-seeking power, often expressed in political realms. Are you with me? These are the principalities and powers. And the Palm Sunday parade uh, challenged Pilate's political power. Uh, Jesus riding side saddle on a donkey on one side of town to, uh, to proclaim the peace for all the nations to the, to the uh, waving of palms and shouts of Hosanna is, in fact, Jesus' critique and challenge of the political power being displayed on the other side of town. This is Jesus' kind of indirect confrontation to all of this. And so Jesus challenges the mode of political power expressed in Pontius Pilate through his own triumphal entry. Jesus was providing an alternative vision for peace than that of Rome's. But that was just at the beginning of the week. <laughs> and you got several more days to go. The next day, Monday of Holy Week, early in the week, Jesus then goes into the temple with his prophetic disruption of overturning the tables and driving out the money changers. And so these prophetic actions, this prophetic disruption, along with his words, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, make clear that at this week, at this time in Jerusalem, Jesus was confronting the normal operation of things. And in fact, he was going to go head to head with the principalities and the powers, which is to say that Jesus was going to go head to head with the political power of Pontius Pilate, with the wealth of the client king Herod, and the corrupt high priest Caiaphas. He's going to go head to head with each of those things. And in fact, we could say that in, with his actions throughout Holy Week, Jesus is not just critiquing these things in particular, but Jesus is in fact confronting the principalities and powers. And the truth is, is that you cannot question the empire's claim to power or threaten the empire's economic engine. You with me? You cannot threaten, you cannot question the empire's claim to power, and you cannot threaten the empire's economic engine without the empire striking back. Huh? Yeah, I worked really hard on that one, okay? I'm like, I gotta sneak a Star Wars reference in here somewhere. It's gotta make its way in there. Uh, and this is in fact the case. You just can't do this without the empire feeling like it's got to strike back before it has to do something. And so early in the week, the plot to kill Jesus gains steam and comes to a culmination on Friday when Jesus is arrested and then hung on a cross. To which the principalities and powers sort of start strutting and they wipe their shoulders like this. And they're like, we got this, okay? We took care of that threat. 
nothing they can do about it. We, did, we, are, we went in our sort of mode of operation, and we did it, and we're proud of ourselves. We, we stomped out the threat. Or had they, right? I mean, to, to wave palms on Palm Sunday, to come next week and celebrate the resurrection is in very real sense to, to sort of align ourselves and our whole lives, not with the narrative expressed in the principalities and powers, but with this alternative vision for the world, which is our definition of peace, which is what it means to, to be loving in the world and what it means to operate in the world. I mean, to be a Christian is to say that there's a whole other narrative that I align my life with than that, of ex than that which is expressed in Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas. And so just as the principalities and powers were so proud of themselves for ending the Jesus movement, for silencing a dissenting voice, and for ending a threat, we have Sunday. <laughs> we have Easter Sunday and the whole thing gets turned upside down. And the earliest theologians are going to do something really interesting in their theological reflection upon the meaning of the cross. They're going to look at the events of Holy Week and they're going to begin to say really big, bold statements that we read in our scriptures this morning. I mean, Jesus already told us when he was interpreting his own death that it's going to be the judgment of the world. That he's going to cast out the Satan, the Hasatan. He's going to cast out evil and draw people to himself. That's Jesus' Jesus's own sort of interpretive meaning for his own death. The world or the principalities and powers will be judged the evil one will be cast out and all people will be drawn to myself. That's Jesus' words. But then, uh, that the gospel writer John records for us, but then the apostle Paul will also make some theological statements. You know, part of the purpose of the cross was suffering. other than suffering. Sorry, let me say that again. Part of the purpose of the cross, other than suffering, was to shame the victim. Uh, we don't often think about this, and, and we don't usually depict this in art because it feels inappropriate, but people hung on the cross naked. And so it wasn't just physical pain and suffering that was inflicted on victims of crucifixion. It was, in fact, deep, deep shame. A public shaming. Because the truth is, for Rome, that's trying to perpetuate only their way and stomp out any threats to the Roman way, the truth is there might be several who would be willing to suffer for a cause that they saw as just. Very few would be willing to suffer and be shamed. When you stack those two on top of one another, not only will you suffer, but you will also be shamed. That means you eliminate a lot of threats before they ever begin. 
And yet, you have throughout history these victims of crucifixion that in fact suffered very extreme physical pain, but also suffered public shame. What the Apostle Paul, though, does when he's reflecting on the cross is he makes a, a, a really tremendous theological claim. And he says, in fact, that on the cross, Jesus is not the one that is being shamed. He says, in fact, that it is the principalities and powers that are being shamed on the cross. And this is an enormous theological claim. This is a totally turning on the head of what the principalities and powers thought they had accomplished on the cross. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, no, 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 evil, you did not have your day and bring shame upon the Son of God. But rather from the cross, the Son of God brought shame upon evil. Whoa. Right? Let's look again at Colossians, if I can find it. I had all my bookmarks marked, and then I just put them all in Corinthians, so that was helpful. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and principalities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the claim of the Apostle Paul. That on the cross, it is not Jesus who is being shamed, it is the principalities and powers. Which is to say, this bold claim essentially says, the, the Apostle Paul is saying that the mode of operating in the world that seeks power for the purpose of self-interest, that, that seeks the accumulation of wealth without generosity and turns religion into a way of gaining power itself is shamed by the cross of Christ. These ways of operating in the world according to evil and evil systems and the principalities and powers, that is the very thing that's being shamed at the cross. Why? Because it was those very systems that killed the innocent Son of God. Amen. It was those very systems that nailed Jesus to the cross. And it was by death then, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but by death then that he conquers these things. That in fact shames them and exposes them as not being true. And so it isn't Jesus that is shamed on the cross. It is the powers. It isn't Jesus that is stripped on the cross. It is the principalities. And at the cross, Satan and evil are overthrown and a new world is established. Yes and amen. You could say this. At the cross, a new world is established. A new king is crowned. A new axis is formed. A new beauty is revealed. And a new way of life is marked out. And I've just covered the previous five weeks of our series. That's the meaning of the cross. A new world is formed. A new way marked out. A new axis established. A new beauty revealed. 
all of these things taking place at the cross of Christ. So that now, both then and now to this day, anyone who will place their trust in the way of Jesus the Christ has an opportunity to live in a different orbit by the power of the Spirit of Christ. And so for us, as we think about the meaning of the cross and we look at it and we begin to see it in a new light, we begin by faith to see past the, like, the surface ugliness of the cross and we begin to see all these beautiful things that were accomplished, then for us it's a matter of first saying, I want to begin to align my life according to these truths. According to the person that I have learned that, that God is through the cross, the character of God revealed in the cross, all of these things that I have, we've come to see now by faith, I place my trust in that. And then by the power of the Spirit of Christ, I can begin to align my life in that way. And so it's both a confession on our part, right? It's this, I trust this, I know this to be true, I confess that in fact, I join my confession with the confession of the Roman centurion, surely this man was the son of God. But then, I've got a life to live. I've got to organize my life around some kind of narrative, some kind of axis, some sort of way of being in the world. And then by the Spirit of God, I begin to see, okay, I can move and I can shift and I can begin to follow the ways of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm just given over to my own best judgment or wisdom, a lot of times I'm going I'm to go with the principalities and powers. Because it's all around us. It's, it's in many ways, it's kind of the water that we swim in, right? And so to go according to the way of Jesus is to go counterculturally, and we need the Spirit of God to lead us. And so it's a confession. It's a life in the Spirit. It's a depending on the Spirit through, the pra through prayers, through spiritual disciplines that help form us and shape us as the people of God. So that more and more I can begin to better discern the way of Christ, the movement of the Spirit, and what the way of the cross, the cruciform way, looks like in this situation or that situation or that situation. But isn't it true that we live in a world where the principalities and powers are still, could we say it this way, fighting for their life? They've been overthrown. They've been defeated, right? It is the fourth quarter and it's a blowout. It's just the final whistle hasn't blown yet. And so the team that's behind is trying to just cause all the havoc they can. This is evil in the world. Evil in the world has been defeated, thrown out by way of the cross. Thanks be to God. We don't have to live according to that anymore. But isn't it running havoc in our world? And so what do we do? How do we rise above it? How do we get out of the way? You come to the cross. Because at the cross of Christ, this is where the principalities and powers are overthrown. This is where the kingdom of Christ is in its full expression. And so, let me ask you a question. Do you need respite from this crazy world? Probably yes. Do you need to get away from all the noise? 
then I invite you, church, to come to the foot of the cross where the principalities and powers are no longer setting the agenda of the day. For it is at the cross where we can rest in the forgiveness that is made available to us in Christ. It is at the cross where we can silence our soul in confidence that you are enough. What do the systems corrupted by the principalities and powers want to say? You are not enough. You don't ever do enough. You don't ever accomplish enough. This isn't enough. That car you drive isn't enough. It's never enough. That's the principalities and powers. You come to the cross and your soul begins to find rest in the confidence that I am enough. When we come to the cross, we can be drawn into Jesus where we can let go of pursuits of power just for power's sake, where we can let go of greed. And here's a good one. At the cross, we can let go of our inclination to project our own fears onto a false enemy. There's a fancy theological term for that. It's called scapegoating. <laughs> and you wonder, I, I'm not a, you know, real big on social commentary and I want to be careful, but we live in a pretty divided world, right? And you think, what, is the, what has caused this? I think we are afraid. A lot of us are afraid. And, and we don't know what to do with that fear. And so we project that fear onto a perceived enemy, whomever it might be, a, a group, a political party, a this or that, a, a brother and sister in Christ who has a little different theological conviction or whatever, right? We, we are so afraid and we, we don't know what to do with that fear. And so we project it onto others. We scapegoat other, others. We do all this. And if we can, as long as we have an enemy other to grab our attention and to divert our attention away from our own fear, uh, then it just it feels better, but it is a false medicine. And so what we need to do can I say this? I think this is good theology. Jesus was the scapegoat to end scapegoating. I mean, what is Jesus but the victim of, of a group of people who, who projected their own fear and angst onto him? Crucify him! Crucify him! Then the, the, the very religious leader saying, we have no king but Caesar. Whoa, right? All this fear, all this angst being projected onto Christ on the cross. Jesus becomes the scapegoat to end scapegoating. And so I invite us to come to the place at the foot of the cross where the principalities and powers have been thrown out. The kingdom of God is in its full expression. 
And we still have to operate in the world and, and, and the principalities and powers are still trying to wreak havoc, right? And so we can still maybe have influence in our people's lives, but we do so as a servant. We maybe can still gain a little bit of wealth, but we do so with a generous heart. We can and we should still practice religion, right? But we do so as a means of experiencing Christ. You wonder why we do what we do every week, week after week, year after year. It is so the people of God can experience Christ. And is church and religion broken? You betcha. 100%. Pretty broken, actually, in a lot of ways. But we still come. We still practice as a way of experiencing Christ. I have this sentence in my notes, and we're coming toward the end, so let's just say it. <laughs> if the religion that we practice increases our hunger for power or fortifies the walls around so-called enemies, it has failed to be a Christ-centered religion. If the religion that we practice, if we come to whatever religious sort of organization on a Sunday, it might be a Sunday morning, it might be a church, it might bear the name Christian, but if it comes to fortify our fears or increase our hunger for power or build up walls around so-called enemies, it has failed to be a Christ-centered religion. And it is no longer driven by the Spirit of God. It is driven by the spirit of the principalities and powers. Because that's what the what principalities and powers want to do. Take something, corrupt it, mis, misalign it just enough that it might look good on the surface, but ultimately it's leading us toward a dead end. And so whatever we practice, may it lead us to the very character of Christ revealed on the cross. And may it lead us to an experience of the Spirit of Christ in our songs, in our prayers, in our gathering around the table. And so, let us come to the cross and be freed from the grip of sin and evil. For the good news this morning is that the principalities and powers have been defeated and cast out by way of the cross. Amen. And thanks be to God. Let me say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Gracious God, we come before you thankful for your presence in this place. Recognizing, God, that we live in a world in which the principalities and powers are seeking to wreak havoc in our lives, personally, and in our lives corporately together, uh, even at a cultural level. And God, there's a lot of things that we can be afraid of. There's a lot of kind of reasons that we can be fearful in this current kind of time that we find ourselves in. Lord, as the people of God, would you protect us from taking that fear anywhere but the foot of the cross? 
Instead, God, instead of, instead of projecting fear onto others, creating kind of enemy others, God, I just pray that you would help us to release our fears to you. God, may we rest in the confidence today that by way of the cross, you have defeated the principalities and powers. And that we can come to the cross to align our lives on a whole different narrative, on a whole different axis. And so God, today we recognize the challenges of this. It's a, it's a great truth. We rest in it, but we also know that there's a there's a living out of this truth. There's a, a working out, a discerning of this truth. And so God, by the, by the power of your spirit leading us, would you in fact guide us? Give us wisdom and discernment, we pray. And especially be with us now as we gather around the table. Meet us in this place, Lord. May we experience you. Um, may we experience your presence. May we have a very real experience of you today as we gather around the table. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.